Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Morning. I'm Stephanie McGlumfrey. Keevan and I are all matchy-matchy today because next month is March, which is St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. Hey, and St. Patrick's Day is on a Sunday, and I will be pinching. So make sure you're wearing green. It's a national holiday, people. It's an international holiday. Yeah, I'm excited. No, but they better go to church somewhere. Yeah, I'll find you. I'll find you in your bed. (laughs) I'm excited to be here with you today. I woke up so nervous. My stomach was just, I was like, how old am I? How am I still nervous after all these years? But I was, but now I see all your beautiful faces and it's it's good to be up here. So I wanted to share with you this morning some common phrases, and I want you guys to, um, Kevin calls them, oh, no, first, I'm going to tell you about my grandbaby. How could I forget that? (laughs) I am a grandmama, and Kevin has decided to go by the name Grumpy. So this is our grandson, Miles J, and J stands for Kevin's middle name, Kevin J. So he's named after Kevin. He is a month old now. These are pretty newborn pictures, but I get to go on Tuesday and see him again, so I'm excited. My, my son called. He said, Mom, I don't have the patience for this. He said, I was up till 11 until 1 o'clock walking around just patting my boy because every time I tried to sit down, he would cry. I said, Ethan, I did that every night for you. So I think you can handle it for a night every now and then. Ethan was a very difficult baby. Um, Okay, so that's the grandbaby. Okay. Reed has started this stupid tradition of having all these witty, witty, witty titles. And for all of us out there that could care less what the name of your sermon is, you can pick it. I don't care. Okay, click. Next next slide. Okay, so this is bumper sticker theology. This is what Keevan calls it. And so I want you to see if you've heard any of these. First one, before the slide comes up, I'm going to read it, and then I want to see if anybody can guess where it comes from. When God closes the door, he opens a window. Anybody know? Where does it come from, Amanda? Oh, okay. Anybody know where that is from? Not the Bible. Your grandma. Okay, you're, this is going to blow your mind. Go ahead. It's from the sound of music, people. Can you believe that? Which is why your grandma knows it. Because it's just another excuse that Kevin has for why musicals are stupid. Because they're obviously not biblical. Okay. The next one. You're never more safe than when you're in God's will. God will not give you more than you can handle. God helps those who help themselves. 
and everything happens for a reason. I'm guessing at some time you have heard one, if not all of these. Oh, the God helps those who help themselves. Anybody know who said that? Not John Wayne. Who, who said it? Benjamin Franklin, our, our uh, founding father, said that. Yeah, sad, sadly, I think it's well-intended believers that when they're trying to help somebody that's going through a hard time, they like to quote these things. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's really kind of deceptive because none of these sayings are in the Bible. They're actually more of, our, of a cultural philosophy than they are from the Word of God. And so as we get into 1 Corinthians, before I start, I know all you students have so much time to read commentaries. I don't want to take credit for a lot of what I'm saying today, so I'm just going to say, tell you who said all this stuff. N.T. Wright, the best. This one's thin enough. You could probably read it like a book. Um, <laughs> Richard B. Hayes, this guy, I love him a lot. I actually bring this with me on Sunday mornings and see if the speaker lines up with what he says. And then... Kenneth E. Bailey, if you're a Bama follower, this is what Marty Solomon recommends. This is pretty dense. I don't suggest it unless you really want to get confused. Um, but as we go into 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is addressing in this chapter some slogans that the Corinthians believed, and they were embracing them, these slogans, like they were Christian theology essentially. Um, some of these were, everything is lawful for me. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food, and God will destroy the one and the other. And this one wasn't specifically written in the passage, but it was an attitude um, that was common among philosophers at the time, and that is, the body is a tomb. So, we live in a culture that focuses a lot on our bodies. And I used to think that was a bad thing, um, I grew up in the 80s, extravagance, you know, we spent a lot of money, and we still do, on cosmetics and fashion and diet programs and plastic surgery. And what is sad about that is that over, after all that, after all that focus that we spend on our bodies, there's still very little contentment with how we look, even after all that money and attention we give to them. We still want to be curvier. We still want to be slimmer. We still want to be more toned. We still want to be more muscular. We still want to be less wrinkly. And um, I don't normally read this magazine, but in 2022, an article by Glamour um, talked about this to describe what's happening in our culture. And it's called normative discontent. So I'm going to read you this, this quote from that magazine. Normative discontent content is a means of describing perpetual dissatisfaction in what we actually have. This leaves us in a constant state of self-sabotage as, as we are constantly looking for something better. Within this mindset, happiness is unachievable, and regardless of any change for the better, we will constantly feel discontent and dissatisfaction. It is a widespread phenomenon and is not just exclusive to women, but also affects men. By definition alone, normative discontent is thought to be the norm rather than the exception. 
Feeling negative about one's appearance becomes a way of life for many and becomes a very restrictive mindset. It has been specifically related to body image and manifests itself in dissatisfaction in body shape, size, and weight. So um, growing up um, in this culture, in a very spiritual family, I took the opposite extreme towards this and thought, um, my body doesn't really matter. Um, if I'm concentrating on my body, then that means I'm not concentrating on my spirit, and the spirit is more important. That was my mindset from being from a teenager. Um, and when Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians, they actually had kind of the same attitude that I did. Um, because the common secular Greek approach to the body in the first century was that the body was a material thing. It's temporary. It's merely a distraction from the most important thing, which is the soul. And so in this approach, what happens is our bodies become irrelevant. The, the Corinthians saw the body as transit and trivial, having concluded that it makes no difference what they did with their bodies. If you're hungry, then you should eat. If you're desirous of sexual gratification, you should seek it. And none of it makes any difference, they said, because it concerns only the external shell, which would have no lasting significance. If I'm going to be totally honest, I have treated my own body with this attitude for most of my life. Um, about 10 years ago, I was in therapy to address the parallels between um, depression and being overweight. And my therapist asked me, she said, do you think God cares about your body? And immediately my response was no. And I think she was kind of surprised at my answer, and so she said, do you think God cares about your daughter's body? And I immediately started crying because suddenly I could see the disconnect in my mind. I was stumped because, of course, I thought God cared about my daughter's body. So why did I think and live like he didn't care about mine? Um, as I mentioned earlier, the Corinthians held this belief that the body is a tomb. To them, the body was merely a prison of the soul, merely a physical shell of what, who the real person was. Um, the Stoic philosopher Epictetus said, I'm a poor soul shackled to a corpse. And there was this, such a strong dualistic attitude towards the body that um, the soul was everything and the body was understood to have no moral value at all. And so all the concentration in the Corinthians' minds was on the human spirit. My generation, and for generations before me, we grew up in church singing hymns like, I'll Fly Away. Do you guys still know that hymn? I'll Fly Away, yeah. Um, kind of, kind of um, giving us this perception that our souls are going to go to heaven when we die. And at, at, at open casket funerals, I'd hear, um, which I really hate, I, that's a weird part of our culture, but... Um, open casket funerals, I'd hear adults as they were 
going by in front of the casket say something like, well, that's just the shell of who they were. That's not them anymore. And in my mind, being young, what I did with my body didn't matter because it wasn't going to make any kind of eternal difference anyway. But my therapist's question about my daughter's body forced me to think about what does God really think about our bodies? And the truth is, the Bible and the early Christians taught that the physical body was part of God's original creation and therefore an essential part of our humanity. If you missed Reed's sermon on Wednesday, when he gets it up on the podcast, make sure you listen to it. It's a, it was Ash Wednesday, and he talks about he talked about how um, we think of our bodies more connected with Genesis three and the curse than we do the fact that dust was actually mentioned by God in chapters one and two as being a good thing. Um, and so the physical body. Sure, currently is subject to corruption and suffering and sin and death. And God's, but God's plan is not to annihilate our bodies and somehow free our souls into this bodiless existence for eternity. So in our passage today, Paul insists that the body is created by God as a good part of creation and that God will redeem our bodies through resurrection. So from chapter 6, the part I'm talking about today, I'm going to read verses 12 to 20. The part that's in, in italis, in italis, that is italicized, is um, the slogan that the Corinthians were using to defend their position, okay? <clears throat> everything is lawful for me, and Paul says, but not everything is helpful. And they say, everything is lawful for me. And Paul says, but I'm not going to let anything give me orders. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy one and the other. And Paul says, but the body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What's more, God raised the Lord, and he will raise us too through his power. Don't you know that your bodies are members of the Messiah? Shall I then take the members of the Messiah and make them members of a prostitute? Of course not. Or don't you know that anyone who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? The two shall become one flesh. That's what it says, meaning scripture. But the one who joins himself to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Run away from immorality. Every sin that is possible for someone to commit happens outside the body. But immorality involves sinning against your own body. Or don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, the spirit God gave you, so that you do not belong to yourselves? You were quite an expensive purchase. So glorify God in your body. Paul was famous in the, in the, in the Christian world for being a preacher of Christian freedom. After all, in Galatians 5.1, it's Paul who says it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. But Christians in Corinth, what they were doing was that they were taking this slogan in defense of living any kind of excessive lifestyle they wanted to live. And that's not unlike America. You know, I, 
if you haven't been outside our country, maybe you don't realize how the perception the rest of the world has of us. They have this perception that we, we just live excessive lifestyles. And it's quite possible that many of these, we've talked about the wise Christians in Corinth, it's quite possible that many of these wise Corinthians supposed that Paul would agree with their slogan, everything is lawful, because he preached God's unconditional grace. And so in light of this new kind of theology, surely that meant all the prohibitions had to fall away into insignificance. So the Corinthians were reasoning that they were free to do whatever they wanted to do with clear conscience. And I think just like this Corinthian church that Paul planted 2,000 years ago, the church in America is pretty comfortable with embracing our freedoms. Um, I don't think very few, I think there's very few Christians that would argue in defense of prostitution, but Paul's arguments address us just as urgently today as they did the Corinthians because it's a, it's a mindset that we have to deal with. Paul regards the resurrection of the body as a crucial underpinning of Christian moral teaching. When the church teaches morality, we should be talking about our bodily resurrection. But I'll tell you the truth, I, growing up and even in my adult life, I very rarely heard anyone talk about the resurrection of our bodies. I heard them talk about the resurrection of Jesus's bodies. I heard them talking about someday when we go to heaven, we'll have new glorious bodies. But I hardly ever heard them talk about the importance of taking care of our bodies now. God has joined the spiritual and the physical, and they cannot be separated. We cannot act as though our actions in the body are of no moral significance. The resurrection reconfirms Christ's love for his creation. So our bodies matter. And to misuse our body is to disrespect the one who created it. Something that really has helped me kind of change my mindset about the way I think of my body is Rudolf Boltman wrote this, um, man does not have a body, he is a body. Um, and a couple of scriptures that have helped as well, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. God will make this happen, for he who calls you is faithful. And then Romans 8, this is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible, Romans 8, 23. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. These verses speak to the fact that our salvation can never be understood as an escape from the physical world, like a flight of the soul to heaven. Rather, the resurrection of the body is an integral element of the Christian story. And so if you have chosen to live in this Christian story, then you need to understand that what you do with your body in the present time 
is a matter of urgent concern. Kenneth Bailey, the big, the big old book, um, he did have a really great quote that I want to allude to now. He said, in short, if I take my body with me beyond death, then any permanent damage that I inflict on it in this life has eternal significance. Later in this Corinthian letter, Paul will go on to say that in the resurrection, the broken physical body of a dying cancer patient will be replaced with a spirit-formulated body that is whole. So is Paul contradicting himself? Perhaps he is trying to discuss mysteries that are beyond our understanding. The truth is found in the fact that Jesus' resurrected body most certainly was most certainly a new glorious body, yet he had scars on his hands and in his side. So Paul seems to be saying, don't scar up your own body. It goes with you. I like to think that what I did physically with my body didn't affect my mind or my spirit. I like to think that neglecting my mental and physical health wasn't really affecting my physical, wasn't really affecting my spiritual life. But God has created our humanity to involve all three things together in everything, body, mind, and spirit. And that's because our bodies are meant to be this physical extension of Christ in this world. Um, the body of Christ cannot be regarded as only spiritual and invisible. Rather, it's a lived-out presence in us, just as Christ was when he on the, was on this earth, a spirit, uh, physical body, and even today is still physical body in heaven, each one of our bodies is to represent Christ on this earth. We essentially are Christ's real-life illustrations to the world around us. My favorite part of Paul's argument to, with the Corinthians' attitude is that he doesn't just merely read the seventh commandment to them, thou shalt not commit adultery. What Paul's doing is he's breaking new ground here with how Christians are start to start making decisions about their lives. We aren't under the law anymore. We aren't called to make decisions about what the law says to do. Rather, the Holy Spirit, if we're open to listening to him, gives us the wisdom to be guided by whether a choice is profitable or not. That word profitable, synonyms are beneficial, useful, advantageous. And the Greek word implies a mutual edification. So you're not just thinking about your own, whether something is to your own benefit. You're thinking about the souls, the bodies, and minds of all the parties involved in your decision. So Paul shifts responsibility onto each individual Christian to think through and work out what is actually helpful. What practice and habits, if you're not careful, will gain mastery over you. But can't you see how easy this is if you're making a decision to kind of do what the Corinthians are doing and kind of twist in it so that you, you okay the decision that you're going to make? whether it's really beneficial to everybody around you or not. 
I think I still struggle with this every day, every day. It takes a lot of spiritual maturity to acknowledge that what we might want to do is not actually helpful. And it's our Christian freedom that must be limited by our regard for other people. So instead of just laying down a simple take it or leave it rule, Paul wants Christians to think through things for themselves. If you give someone a rule, if you give somebody a diet, let's just use that. If you give somebody a diet, they'll stick to it for maybe a day or two, a month or two, even possibly a week or two. But if you teach somebody to think Christianly, you're going to help them make decisions for the rest of their life. And so this new standard of living under Christ, which is choosing to live under law, what it does is it prevents the collapse of the church because everybody's just doing what they want to do. And it prevents people from ruining their lives. When a person, when a Christian loves God, sure, all things are permissible. But when you love God, you're going to love what he loves. And this means we have love for all other people because all other people are created by God. And so our conduct has to be regulated by love. And I would say that our culture probably needs a really good sermon on what love is. Because um, when we make these decisions based on love, it's a different... It's a different definition than what our world says love is. In the Corinthians' minds, these wise people who had these well-thought-out arguments, their logic justified indiscriminate sex. Um, Just like you eat meat, no, not meat, food. Just like you eat food, I have the word meat here, and so I'm I'm thinking of Keevan because he loves meat. Just like you eat to meet the body's physical needs and to please the stomach, you have sex to release tension or experience sexual pleasure. And no doubt the Corinthians argued that having sex with a prostitute was no big deal because there was no significant union there. There was no love between the people. There was no ongoing relationship. But Paul teaches that any act of sexual intercourse necessarily creates a new unity with that person. And so here I find Paul's argument, I feel like it displays a really, um, a psychological insight that wasn't very um, thought of during the first century and that and Paul is denying that sex is merely this detached and peripheral function of our sexual instincts. His whole argument presupposes that sexual intercourse should be understood merely not as a momentary action that satisfies a natural urge. Instead, it's meant to create a real and enduring union between a man and a woman. The truth is that our bodies belong to the Lord Jesus. Those who are in Christ have been united with him in a relationship of intimate union that's even deeper than sexual union. And Paul uses the same Greek verb to describe in verse 15, right? Verse 15. Paul uses the same, Kevin said, make sure you say it's verse 15. 
Paul uses the same Greek verb to describe our union with Christ that he then uses in verse 16 to describe the union with the prostitute. So that means that our physical bodies no longer belong to us. They belong to Christ when we give our lives to him. Oh, this is the verse 15 part. Sorry. So I'm going to explain it this way. If you run into the arms of Christ's love, and then you run into the arms of another person in sexual union, it's actually a wrenching process because this Greek word is iro. And what that word means is take away by force. In the passage, I think it just says take, but the actual Greek word is this idea of taking something away by force. So the believer's body is joined to the body of Christ And now that same body cannot be joined to another body unless it is first wrenched, torn, taken away by force from Christ. And in Paul's mind, that's a horror. And so Paul is setting forth a new identity for us. Once we confess, when you come to Christ, you confess that you are not your own anymore. And so we have to admit we're not free to do anything we like. We're not free to invent our own standards. You know, our American culture sounds eerily like the Corinthians culture. We, we talk a lot about our rights, our freedom to choose, our self-determination. And one thing, oh, but one thing I do find confusing about this section is that Paul says that of all the sins, fornication is the one that affects the body and insults it. But that's not strictly true. If you think about drunkenness, suicide, gluttony, these things also are sins against our bodies. And so Kenneth Bailey says that Paul is not completely denying that there are other sins against the body. He's simply saying that these other sins do not leave anything like the same scar that sexual sin does. Other sins do not necessarily take the believer by force away from the body of Christ and join their body to a new body. And in Paul's view, sexual sin does that. And that's why he singles it out. Um, But I do want to say, in all fairness, that we must note that there are other sins besides sexual sins. Verses 9 to 10 list some of them because... This verse, this specific verse, the church in America has often majored on condemning sexual sin and has self-righteously forgotten those other sins like greediness and abusive speech. Cheating other people out of what they deserve can warp a person's spirit just as easily as sexual sin can. And I do believe the American church needs to find the moral courage to confront and discipline the greedy, the idolatrous, and the perpetrators of all abuse. But it is, and it's interesting because Komar last week for chapter 5 talked about how Paul encouraged the church to drive out the wicked person from among the, their company. And so it's interesting that Paul does not call on the church to excommunicate these men who have been sleeping with prostitutes. Paul is not saying that sexual sin is unforgivable. Instead, he's trying to reason with them philosophically 
and he's summoning these individuals to have the moral humility of recognizing themselves to be subject to the lordship of Christ. Now, what went on after this, we don't know. How these men responded to what Paul called them to do, we don't know. Um, if they weren't willing to do that, then perhaps they were in the same boat as the man in, in chapter 5. So before I close, um, Jesus' body was crucified and buried, but then it was exalted, it was transformed, and it was made immortal by the power of God. Our physical bodies are not waste. Our physical bodies are not just food for the worm someday. One day, God will transform our mortal bodies into immortal bodies. Until that time, our bodies are to be a physical extension of Christ. I think lots of times we concentrate on giving our minds to Christ, um, transforming the way we think. Um, we definitely talk about giving our souls to Christ, but we need to understand that we're giving our bodies to Christ too. And so we have to serve him, not just with our thought life, not just merely with our feelings when we worship, but we have to serve him with our hands and our feet and our eyes and our ears and our tongues. One day our bodies will be resurrected to live an immortal and dignified condition. Our bodies will be transformed. And somehow they're going to be the very same bodies that have existed on this earth. I don't know how that is. Paul doesn't explain it. But until then, let's take Kenneth Bailey's advice and not scar them up. When you go about making your daily decisions, and it is a daily decision how you take care of your body, um, remember what Paul says. Or don't you know that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? The Spirit God gave you so that you do not belong to yourselves. You were quite an expensive purchase. So glorify God in your body.